Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. All right, so you buckle up because we're going to take off. And I struggle a little bit with the title of this sermon. I don't know about you, Ian, as you've been preaching through this. The book of Jonah is one of those books that you can enter almost anywhere and go anywhere. You know, but in the interest of time, I have titled this this morning, Preparation for a Prodigal Prophet. And I just want to note that this morning is not about Jonah. Jonah has had his deal. This morning is about you and me in the purposes of God. I believe that when we assemble as we are assembled, God gathers us for a moment of encounter. And every single encounter with God, no matter how brief, no matter how, you know, sudden it may be, is transformational. So please be, shall I say, alert and watch that which God in his mercy and grace will do in our midst this morning. The text is from Jonah chapter 4. I'll start reading a little earlier than what you have. I'll just read those first 11 and the only 11 verses there. So what has happened here, as you've been following along in the series, is that a major revival has broken out. And history records, be it from that 8th century up until today, there's never been a revival like the revival that God initiated through the ministry of Brother Jonah. But there's something interesting that in the midst of this great revival, we're told in verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, And he was angry. God has done a mighty work. Brother Jonah is not happy. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Now you have to picture where we are in northeastern Pennsylvania. And God is saying to go out perhaps to Manhattan. You know, go further, maybe 500 miles due east. And brother Jonah chooses to go 2,000 miles west. That's the arithmetic. It's not that complicated. He's trying to run away from God. In fact, the earlier chapters tell us he was going away from the presence of God. That's at least what he was trying. He says, I know that you are gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I want to note that Jonah got his theology right. His theology was right, as you will see throughout our conversation. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. That's also good theology. He understands only God can create and God can take away life. For it is better for me to die than to live. Oh, And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Similar question we find in the book of Genesis, but we don't have time to go there. And look at what Jonah does in verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. The city is in the midst of a great revival, but brother Jonah is inhibited By something within him. And now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over over Jonah. That it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. 
Now, please don't think he was suddenly an environmentalist. There's something else going on. I need to pause, though, because oftentimes when people are walking away from the purposes of God, especially in our time in North America, you find them embracing one of two things which Jonah embraced. They either become hyper-nationalists or they become environmentalists. Those things in themselves are not sinful. They are not antithetical to the purposes of God. But if they become the draw and the attraction for our lives, because we're fleeing from the primary agenda, then I believe this morning the voice of God will touch our hearts to remind us it is me first. It's not MAGA first. It's not green first. It's not blue first. It is me first. Amen? And of course, God appoints the sun to come the next day. God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Like, do you do well to be so concerned about who wins the next election or which, you know, which plants are on the highway to prevent erosion or things of the sort. Very significant, you know, challenges, demands, if I may. Or do you do well to carry a hunger, a passion for the glory of God to flood the land? Do you do well to be angry? And he said, yes, <laughs> I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And I'll just drop this line here. One of the things about prodigals is that they are so convinced that they are right that they are blinded as a result to the fact that they are prodigals. Very convinced in their self-disillusion, as it were, and they feel like this is it. This is the only thing that could be. Anyway, time is not on us. And the Lord continues. He says, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Very fast, it was gone. And that's it about the plant. You will never come back to it in any shape, form. But God is asking the question, dealing with the souls of men, the souls of men that have, that have eternal value, the souls of men that are destined to live for eternity. And God says, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and there's also so much cattle. Now, of course, in terms of numbers, at this point, there are probably somewhere about 300,000 people in the city. But, you know, as I read this, was pondering, yesterday we stopped over to greet a family in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, and I heard something that really startled me. Uh, so in maybe six months ago or so, some of you may have seen this on one of the Jeopardy uh, uh, competitions on television, where a group of, you know, champions, contestants, was asked to complete a particular sentence and the sentence began, our Father, who art in heaven, blank be thy name. None of these kids, some of the brightest and the best that we have in this nation, knew which word to put in that space. When you talk of not knowing left hand from right hand. Now I want to pursue three tracks this morning. Track number one I'd like to pursue is this idea that Jonah is an accomplished prophet. 
The second thought we'd like to anchor or, you know, work with is this notion that we're here face to face with an angry prodigal. And finally, I'd like to touch on the apostolic passion that's embedded in this passage. And for that, I want to thank our dear sister, Teresa. You spoke the mind of God this morning to the people of God. And I want to thank as well our dear mother, Trish, whose prophecy is indeed coming to pass. Because, you know, we have this statistics when you're reading and you're told that, well, my church seats 5,000. And often the question is, how do you measure the size of a church? I told you I love numbers a little bit. And when it comes to measuring things, you know, I'm always intrigued and interested by, by such considerations. Can I propose to us this morning that the church is not measured by its seating capacity. The church is measured by its sending capacity. It is how many we're sending. That is what counts. And when the Father is measuring the size of our church. So quickly come with me as we look at what I call prerequisites for an accomplished prophet. Now the man Jonah himself was an amazing individual in the hands of the Lord. And I want to note that just as with Jonah, we sang this morning, Spirit come, move among us. And the Holy Spirit is here, he's moving among us. When God calls a man for his purposes, as he has called each one of us here this morning. Now I speak in general terms, and then there are specific callings, but I see that there are at least three things that God does in his servant to bring them to a place where they become a reference. First of all, God allows this servant to know certain things, to know certain things. And most important of this is God allows for his servants to know his character. When I say Jonah got his theology right, look at him in Jonah 4 verse 2, the second part. He says, for I know I know this. There's something about experience. There's something about an intimacy that has occurred wherein Jonah says, I know that I can take this to the bank. This is who you are. Who is God? He says, for I know that you are gracious. You are gracious and merciful God. You're slow to anger and you're abundant in loving kindness. And you're one who relents from doing harm. And you might say, well, Brother Julius, that's just one verse. Here the psalmist in Psalm 103 verse 1, speaking of the Lord. He says, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. And for the New Testament, Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3 and 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. When Jonah declares that this is what I know, he uses two powerful words. He says, God is gracious. And he says, God is merciful. In other words, in one hand, God does not deliver to us as we deserve because of our sinfulness. And on the other hand, God goes beyond the merits that that which should be ours and bypasses that and shows us his goodness. Jonah knows a thing or two in this regard. And seated here this morning as we're gathered as a people of God, we know things about God. We know his character. 
We go through the scriptures and we look at our own lives and we see the unique ways in which God has prepared us, the experiences he has brought us through, the teachings that we have received from his word. And as we look at his word, we see and we experience and we can go to the bank, we can go to tomorrow with all the uncertainties about who the next candidate is, who the next election winner will be. With all of that confusion in the world, we can eyeball our circumstances and declare like Job, though he slay me, this one thing I know, I have a redeemer who lives and who will rescue me, who will deliver me for his own glorious purposes. Whether that deliverance takes place in the natural physical realm or it's a deliverance into his eternal presence, I know he is faithful. Like Paul will declare in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he says, for I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I believe it is Jim Elliot who says it right. He's not a fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. My friends, when we embrace Jesus Christ and his assignment over our lives, it's not for lack of other things. It's because of a clear realization in the words of Jim Elliot that he's not a fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jonah got it right. His theology was good. But there's a second thing that God does in the servants that he's going to use. Jonah, Jonah's hearing was sensitized. In Jonah 1, verse 1, we read, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. In Jonah 3, 1, we read, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. So you know, this is not some fly-by-night offering collector. This is a guy who knows how to hear the voice of God. And he can tell when God is speaking to him. And that is part of the driving force for the child of God. Now you might say to me, Brother Julius, this business about hearing the voice of God, you know, you just open up the scriptures and it's a verse you read a hundred times and you read it that morning and here it is. What's going on? God is talking to you. And a brother walks into a circumstance that, you know, he's not aware of or a sister walks into it and they declare truth. And you go, how is this? God is talking. Jonah is already accustomed and time would fail me. But we notice there's a third thing that Jonah sees. So there's a knowing, there's a see, there's a hearing, and there's a seeing. And in 2 Kings chapter 14, I'll let you read that passage, 2 Kings 14, 23 to 25. What's going on? Jeroboam has become king. Things are messed up. Israel is in bad shape. The northern kingdom is having challenges, economic and, you know, their property issues, boundaries and confusion. Who steps to the stage to declare the word that births a national revival? You guess right, Jonah, the son of Amittai. And he had seen revival in his land. As you will see, there's only one challenge Jonah is facing. And perhaps that's the challenge I am facing and you are facing. But what we're trying to say this morning is simple. God has certain basic things he does in the hearts and in the lives of his people to prepare them for the destiny he has for them. One of those things is God shows himself to those people. Of Moses, the Lord speaking, he said, the children of Israel saw the wonders, the miracles, but you know me. There's an intimacy. I believe this morning the Father is inviting us to take a step deeper, further 
in the path of intimacy with God. Because when Paul, when Peter, pardon me, and John, in 1 John, for instance, you find, and Peter as well is right, he says, we're not talking to you about stuff we read. We're talking to you about things that we saw with our eyes, things that we handled of the precious goodness of Almighty God. And I believe God wants to do that this morning right here. You might say to me, Brother Julius, you know, I used to hear the voice of God, but it's been a while. I used to see God at work. It's been a while. Well, remember, this is not about Jonah. This is about you and I. So here's what I'd like to do. In the next one or two minutes, because we don't have too much time, I want you to bow your heads. But before you do, let me explain to you what I believe is going to happen. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes. If you can keep your eyes wide open and stay undistracted, by all means. And I believe here's what's going to happen. Number one, God will reveal himself anew to some of us right here. He will speak into your heart beyond words any of us could say. He will touch your soul in areas that have not been touched but which need to be touched. For some of you, it will be pictures. For some of you, it may be sensations in your body. And for some, it will be healing right here, right now. Why? We don't serve a dead God. We're not just reading a history book and going, oh, that was fun. He's here right now. Amen? So please come with me. This is, this is what, if you care, some kind of impartation. And, and as well, I want to believe that God will cause his word to come alive again. I, I'm especially praying for a renewal of a passionate hunger for the word of God. Not only the logos, but the rema revealed, clearly convened, conveyed into our hearts. So please let's take just a moment here, if you don't mind bowing your heads and your eyes are closed. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. In the gathering of your sons and daughters, you are supreme, you're sovereign. So Lord, I pray now, from the left of this room to the right, from the front to the back, breathe on us, speak your truth, Bring healing. Bring deliverance. Let the chains of captivity break now. Let your healing power flow through this room. Bring clarity to a child of God wondering what is the next step. Bring understanding. Bring truth. Bring your word. You said the entrance of your word brings light and grants understanding. Clear doubts and confusions. And touch us, Lord. Now, for some of you, it may be flashes that you're getting at this moment. For some of you, it may be, you know, just, you're just breaking out in sweat or something of the sort. For some of you, it may just be an intense sense of warmth surrounding you or heat. Holy Spirit, have your way. Have your way.
And there's somebody here this morning with chronic back pain that God wants to heal right now. Right now. Somebody with nerve issues on the on one of your fingers, on the left hand, God is healing that right now. And somebody has had issues with voiding that God is addressing this moment. There's somebody that's had an issue on the left eye. I don't know exactly what it was, but the left eye has been swollen, and God is addressing that right now. And there's somebody here with an estranged prodigal in the family. You've not heard from them. It's been a long while, perhaps even years. And God is bringing them back, reconnecting and bringing healing. There's somebody in the midst of a major business decision and you've been wondering which way to go. And God is bringing clarity by saying, wait, don't move yet, wait. Now, heads about, eyes are closed. You're seeing a picture. You're sensing the move of God over your heart. Can you shoot up your right hand? Yes. God bless you. And if your hand is up, I want you to stand. Just stand. You're sensing God moving over your life. Just stand. Thank you, Jesus. Just stand. Thank you. We don't have time to go through, but I just want to confirm today and agree with you. Let God bring to pass that which he's saying. Let God perfect his work in your life. Psalm 138, 7 and 8 is what I leave with you. David declares, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will perfect that which concerns me. Your right hand will deliver me. In fact, there's somebody here this morning with a work situation, tension in the workplace, and God is moving the pieces on that table, rearranging the pieces on that deck, as it were, for his glory through your life. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Thank you. God is not dead, my friends. God is not dead. And when we gather one of our biggest challenges is to steward his move, to create space for him to be God. Amen? And God is working in this place, touching hearts. But we need to move on. Second, we notice after those prerequisites for an accomplished prophet, Jonah is something of a national hero. At his word, revival has broken up. The economy has been restored. The boundaries have been rearranged. Boy, He's probably getting some favors from the king. But remember, he is the one who declares God is gracious and merciful. The challenge for Jonah, though, is that he thinks God can be put in a, in a circle. He doesn't realize, like St. Augustine of all said, the love of God is, as it were, a circle whose radius is infinite. Now think about that. For Jonah... The love of God is circumscribed by the boundaries of Israel. But no, you cannot find a radius for the love of God. In simpler terms, this simply means that there is nothing and no circumstance, no situation, no location you can find yourself in where you would say, I'm outside the love of God. 
Now think about that. And I speak this morning as one who has been a prodigal myself, and maybe you're thinking, yeah, Brother Julius, I'm a prodigal, and I think I completely lost it. Well, you're here and online, and you're following along. You are under the grip of God's love. He doesn't let go. And he doesn't look at, oh, here's what you did yesterday, so you totally blew it, you totally... No, he says, come. That's the invitation of the Father. Come. Whether you've cursed him or neglected him or rejected him, the Father says, come. Come. And so we find that God goes ahead to do some preparations for this angry prodigal. The section of the passage I'm reading is Jonah 4, 5 to 8. Jonah goes out of the city, city of Nineveh, and he sits on the east side of the city, and he makes himself a shelter, and he gets some shade. He's going to stay underneath that, and several things are happening. I want you to notice how God prepares for his prodigal. In chapter 1, verse 4, we read quickly that God sent a great wind. He had prepared a great wind for Jonah. In Jonah 1:17, he prepared a great fish. Ha. And some say, was it a fish? Was it a whale? Was it a shark? Well, depends where you take off. If you take off from the fact he hung the earth in outer space, it could be a tilapia or anything. Or as some joke, as some joke, Jonah, after all, was a minor prophet, so it didn't take much to keep him in. But that's, that's a separate story. <laughs> God, in verse 6 of chapter 4, prepares a plant, the casserole plant. Uh, and, and then, of course, prepares a worm in verse 7 of chapter 4. Prepares a wind in verse 8. Notice God takes the initiative to reach the prodigal. He takes the initiative. And when the heart of God is boiling within us, Eric mentioned this morning those three steps, one of the ways we know that we are where the Father wants us to be is that we are often taking the first step. The first step to bridge a gap, the first step to bridge a relationship that's been messed up, the first step. But not only that, we find Jonah at his worst here, Displaying to us what self-pity produces. You will notice, think with me, that self-pity leads people, leads us, number one, to disengage. Number two, self-pity is often the reason we isolate ourselves and then disillusionment. If you care in simpler terms, and I want to think of the local church here, and I just want to note Hope Outreach, Navigators, Bethel, name it. Fantastic ministries, what of you. But you know, the headquarters of God's missionary purpose, you know where that is? It's a local church. It's a local church. That's the headquarters of God's movement across the earth. It's not some ministry out here to the side. Let me pause here. Some of you may have read the account of, you know, there was a major situation a few years ago with a huge international figure in evangelical circles who ran into issues, and unfortunately, the issues only came to the fore when he had already passed on. Left a number of people in some level of confusion and, you know, amazement as to how this was possible. And for my own sake, I was reading through some of the stuff to go, what do I have to be careful here about? Well, survey after survey, article after article noted, well, you know, the board has to do this, and the board has to do that, and the board, and I'm thinking, yeah, that's the worldly method. There's surely a kingdom method to address this issue. Can I submit to the church this morning? The local church is the headquarters of God's missionary action. And when you and I become too big to be part of a local church, we're showing the red flag, the warning signs of disarray, of disengagement, of disillusionment. 
And when I read, I read one article where it was noted that this dear brother, this gentleman, had gotten to a place where he did not belong to a local church. And when that happens, self-pity kicks in. Because it's often generated by a sense of, well, you know, I'm the best and the brightest, and uh, my ministry is flourishing. I don't need those people there. No. This is the headquarters. This is where we receive our orders, matching orders. Okay, you're going to Prague. You're going to Bethel. You're going to Guatemala. How do we do that? Because when we gather corporately, he releases his anointing here with mission orders. The anointing is not meant to make us feel good or spooky. The anointing is meant to make us effective in the direction of the assignment that the Father has given. So Jonah stopped serving God and others. And brother, I do want to ask you, my sister, are you still serving God? Are you still serving others? Jonah secondly stopped fellowshipping. He cuts himself out. He's in the midst of a great revival. This prophet perhaps should have been there stewarding this revival, discipling these people. But he is so caught up, wrapped up in himself. He stops serving God, stops serving others, and he stops fellowship. And third... Jonah turns himself into a spectator. In verse 6, verse 5, we read, he goes off to the east of the city and he's going to watch what God will do. Can I say this morning, if you have become a spectator, this word is for you as it is for me. Get back in the game. Get back in the game. Get back in the game. This is daddy's game and we're all in it together. We all have a part to play. We have unique giftings. We have unique callings. I would add that heightened self-pity produces prodigals. When self-pity reaches its peak, what you find is we're doing this. And before you know it, we're on our own. But thank God Jonah's story doesn't end that way. Jonah 4, 9 to 11. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Jonah is mad that this plant that has given him shade is gone. Now, he's not so concerned about how the plan came about. He's caught up with, this is good for me. I mean, this for me. So God says, is it right for you? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got some comfort from it. You know, I, for a moment, I felt like this is good for the planet. You know? He said, it's right for me to be angry even to death. But the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant. Not for the plant's sake for the relief it brought you. And you didn't labor for that plant. You didn't make it grow. It came one night and it was gone the next. How about Nineveh? How about that great city? And cities have something to do in God's agenda. We don't have time to go there. But we can plumb those wells another time. And God is looking at a major Assyrian city up to the north of Israel. And he's looking at the potential in the cosmopolitan nature of that location. Yes, Nineveh is a place of great military might. But he's seeing the potential for the advance of his kingdom. And Jonah is trapped by a rugged sense of nationalism. And by an occasional inclination towards environmentalism. Whatever ism holds us this morning, I pray let it break in Jesus' name. And let the apostolic passion of the Father envelop our hearts, inflame our hearts. It says, I have pity on Nineveh. 
I got thousands of people there that don't know which way to turn. They lack direction. And the reason you are called and you know and you can hear and you can see is that you will provide direction. Would you embrace my passion? It's apostolic in nature. And that's not some title, here comes the apostle. That just means it's a sending drive. The father is always sending. He's out to engage others. The disengaged, the disenfranchised, the unchurched, the dechurched. He's saying, I'm sending you to them. And we notice, first of all, friends, as we draw this to a close, that God's mercy. God is saying to Jonah, you're caught up with yourself, pity. I can see you feel bad that you don't have a roof over your head. I can see you feel bad that the latest plasma TV that operates just by command of voice, you don't yet have it. I can see you feel bad that your shower doesn't respond to you when you say, shower, come on. Siri, let the water flow. Your shower doesn't hear that. So that troubles you. You know, your gadgets have made you so sad, but there are souls perishing. There are, there's darkness filling the land. The universities need help. The nations need help. The cities need help. Would you cry out on my behalf? Can't you see my mercy, my, my longing to draw these people to myself? And what's going on here? First of all, I believe God is saying to Jonah, my mercy, God's mercy, is a pathway to the heart of God. God's mercy, not only for me, but my understanding of the mercy of God, opens up the heart of God for me to come right through by his grace and power so others can come in. And I believe that's what he's calling us to. Our sister Teresa spoke about that this morning. Eunice and I, our children, have been victims of God's mercy extended through this congregation, through each one of you. And I just want to say, our fathers, the generation that precedes us, was right in laying a solid foundation for theology. I believe, Brother Ian, Eric, and the rest of us now, our mandate is going to be more so in the apostolic arena, arena, in the sending. It is no surprise this morning we're talking three teams, Prague, Bethel, Cameroon, and there's just going to be more. There's going to be more. And there's a luncheon on, tu- on Tuesday, right, for, you know, uh, the, the generation ahead of us. More and more of them will say, what am I doing with this time God has given me? What am I doing with this experience? When you begin to feel that, know the prophecy is coming to pass. Because there's going to be a restlessness for the others when you have said to yourself, I'm done. I did my time. 35 years in New York City. That's right enough. It's time to enjoy. And the Holy Spirit is saying, it's time to go. It's time to engage. It's not time to fold up. On your knees, you can go. And through your pockets, you can go. With your mind, you can go. Through your hands, you can go. Writing and encouraging and blessing. God's mercy is a pathway to the heart of God. Secondly, God's mercy is our safeguard from wandering. Think about that. What helps us to stay God-like, Christ-like, is the realization we were once in darkness. And but for the mercy of God, but for the grace of God, we will still be there. It's not because we are Americans or smart or intelligent or educated. No, it's the mercy of God. And what preserves us is the mercy of God, that God looks at us and he keeps his hand on us in spite of us. And in some cases, despite us. And this is what Isaiah is speaking to the nation in Isaiah 40, say, who has known the mind of God to give him counsel. And I joke sometimes, say, I thank God he doesn't take advice from me. Because if God were taking advice from me, there are some people he would not heal. There are some people he would not save. 
told you this is about prodigals. But the mercy of God thrown out there lavishly. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 tells us the steadfast love, that unchanging love of God never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Brother, you're here this morning not because you know how to drive. Others have been killed on that same highway. You're here this morning not because you're so careful with the law. No, others have gone that path. But we're here because of God's mercies. And we're kept on fire because of God's mercies. Lord, show me your mercy. I want to be right in on the heart of God. Lord, show me your mercy. I won't be spared from the accoutrements of modern civilization and culture and its burdens. It's the latest this and the latest that. And you know, sometimes, hopefully not here, but on a prayer line, you find somebody who my neighbor just got the, the electric F-250, and I'm still on the F-150. Does it go from point A to point B? Yes, it does. So what are you talking about? Anyway, that's how I roll. God's mercy, friends, is the impetus for missions. What drives missions is not the number of stamps on our passports. Truth be told, ask any of the teams that have gone and come. This is so tiring, so demanding, but you realize, as Paul would say, necessity is laid upon us. That God has put his finger and his heartbeat is souls, souls, souls. And his heartbeat is the nations, the nations. Not so much those geographic entities, but those people groups. Whether you're talking Gen Z, the nations. Gen X, you know, who are trying to X out everything. They're still in part of God's agenda. And through his mercy that we can see through this is what God has in store for this people. God has a plan and a purpose for them. That excites us, brothers. That excites us, sisters. And we want to just lay our all at his feet. The apostolic passion says, nothing should be of greater passion to you than that which is of a passion in the heart of God. That's all what he says. And Paul captures this nicely in Romans 10 when he declares, how shall they hear? He starts off, he says, faith comes by hearing, by hearing by the word of God. How shall they hear if there's no preacher? And how shall there be a preacher if none is sent? And new covenant, we are called to answer that question today. By beginning to strategize as families, strategize as individuals, strategize as small groups, strategize as communities, to say, God, where would you have us go? How would you have us engage for your glory? On Friday morning, we're visiting the Parliament of Canada, and we have a young lady, her name was Shekina, who was showing us around as part of the tour. The English tour was, had more people, so we went for the French tour, Fewer, there was a family from Quebec who spoke Quebecois, <laughs> you know, different French. <laughs> and, and immediately she introduces herself, Shekina. I go, oh Lord, thank you. You know, so we're on tour, you know, this is fun stuff. But this is an opportunity. And when she's done with the tour, she says, the tour ends here. I said, Shekina, do you know what your name means? And so I got this family from Quebec, may never meet them again. But Shekinah goes, no, I don't. Maybe you do. Oh, thank you, Lord. It's just a question. You can ask a question. And you see, some of us are keen to operate in the gifts of the Spirit, 
when we're in this setting. And you realize those gifts are much more glorious in their operation out there. They're tools of the trade. I don't see any plumber here this morning who came with their, you know, with their box ready to do plumbing work. I don't see an electrician. When God graces our lives, he graces us for the marketplace. Out there. What he wants is a sensitivity on our hearts to how he wants to operate. So in two minutes, I get to share how the glory of God fell when Solomon has dedicated his temple and nobody could move. And said, so, you know, we've just come through the Senate building, honored, nice, beautiful floors, uh, we're seat of power. I said, but when that glory falls, nothing moves because Yahweh is in the house. You are a carrier of Yahweh. And the Quebecois family say, oh, mais ça c'est bon, that's amazing. That's... And I'm thinking, God, do your thing in their lives. Do your thing. Remember, friends, the parable does not say the sower went forth to harvest. It says the sower went forth to sow. So wherever he places us, drop a word. Drop an action. Drop a kind word. Drop something. Let there be a residue of God. It's not lost. Years, generations will pass by. And somebody will say, it was this man in this place or this lady that said something. And that changed my life. How does God want to show mercy to me and through me? That's the question I leave with us this morning. Who does God want to show, visit with his mercy through you? Is it the neighbor next door? Or is it the co-worker in the next cubicle? And I'll say that there's only one substitute to obedience to God. One. There aren't two. When God invites us, as he's inviting us to embrace his apostolic agenda to go into the nations, to engage the nations with his glorious claims, the only substitute there is is disobedience. I feel like it is not a substitute. I don't like it, it's not a substitute. Whatever you say other than obey, we're acting in disobedience. I close this morning with three simple calls. There's first a call to salvation. This is that which God sent Jonah to Nineveh for. And you may be here this morning or you may be following us online and you're saying, ha, ah, I want to be in on this. Well, here's how it works, very simple. That longing in your heart is placed there by the Father himself because he loves you and he wants to transform you and use you for his purposes. Will I become a pastor? No, you don't have to become a pastor. You just be passionate for him, living for him wherever he has positioned you. And how does this work? You agree with God that you and I are sinners. And you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sin, my sin. It may not make sense mentally, but you agree to that purpose. And you say, well, you know I'm so smart. I don't believe stuff like that. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. You're driving a car whose engine you didn't check. You didn't regularize to make sure the mechanic did everything nice. You have faith. Question is, on what? And we're inviting you this morning to place your faith in Jesus. He paid the price for your sin debt. Consider what it will cost you. It will cost you something. This is not an easy gospel. It's a free gospel. But it's a gospel that plates, places you against the current of the world. And you will say, Lord Jesus, I want to follow you. And then do it. A, B, C, D. That's it. 
accept that you're a sinner. Believe he died for you. Consider what it will cost you. You may be ridiculed. Some will laugh at you, go, what's wrong, dude? But down the line, they'll realize God's on the winning side, and you have crossed over to that winning side. Do it. The second call this morning is a call to discipleship. Maybe you've already received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you're excited, I'm saved. So you carry with you your permit, your visa into heaven, and you think that's where it stops. No, Jesus says, follow me. He says to follow me. What that means simply is every day, you're going to take steps as he guides and as he directs you, and you're going to be obeying him in the authority and power of the Holy Spirit. His word will be there to guide you. The local church will be an arena for you to grow and experience his warmth and invite your friends and bring others to experience the same truth. The third call is a call to consecration. This is where you say, okay, I'm happy Jesus saved me. I'm happy I'm following him, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to lay it all there. And I'll be what he wants me to be. I'll say what he wants me to say. And I'll go where he wants me to go. You know, Mary Brown of Connecticut wrote a hymn about some 200 years ago or so. I don't think I've ever sung here. And I've often been encouraged not to sing. But I feel like this summarizes the lesson. So for what it's worth, let this be to us a prophetic act. If Julius can sing, you can go. Is that okay? Do we have a deal? Amen. It may not be on the mountain's height or o'er the stormy sea. It may not be at the battle's front. My Lord will have need of me. But if by still small voice he calls to paths I do not know, I'll answer, dear Lord, with my hand in thine. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord, over mountain or plain or sea. I'll say what you want me to say, dear Lord. I'll be what you want me to be. Perhaps today there are loving words which Jesus would have me speak. There may be now in the paths of sin some wanderer whom I should seek. O Savior, if thou will be my guide, though dark and rugged the way, my voice shall echo the message sweet. I'll say what you want me to say. I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord, over mountain or plain or sea. I'll say what you want me to say, dear Lord. 
I'll be what you want me to be. There surely somewhere a lowly place in earth harvest fields so wide, where I may lay both lies short day for Jesus the crucified. So trusting my all to thy care, I know thou lovest me. I'll do thy will with a heart sincere. I'll be what you want me to be. I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord, over mountains or plains or sea. I'll say what you want me to say, dear Lord. I'll be what you want me to be. Father, we pray this morning. Let the fire of revival, let the fire of missions, let the passion to engage obediently with Almighty God envelope our hearts and let it burn, let it burn, let it burn, let it consume us, let the zeal of the house of the Lord consume us and awaken us, quicken us, Lord. Even as we sang this morning, you called my name. And I ran from the grave of the prodigal. I ran from the grave of disengagement. I ran from the grave of isolation. I ran from the grave of disillusionment. Oh, empower our weakness. And may new covenant continue to be a powerful sending community for your glory and for your honor in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word JESUS to 610-816-6062.